0: Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Today we discuss brazen thieves with catchy nicknames like Gentle Jim, the Kissing Bandit, and Murph the Surf. First, we meet up with historian and fellow podcaster Casey Paquette. Casey's passion for history may be rooted in his own DNA. His ancestors date back to the early days of Miami after its incorporation in 1896, making him a third-generation Floridian. His Miami History podcast explores a variety of topics related to the people, places, and events that have shaped Miami's 125-year history. Casey joins us to talk about some strange crimes that occurred in the Miami Brickle neighborhood over a three-decade period, one that includes a likable thief named Gentle Jim. I sat down with Casey in the town where these crimes occurred to discuss his background and knowledge of Miami's weird history. Welcome, Casey. Welcome to the show. It's so glad to have you on here.
1: Well, thank you, May. I appreciate you inviting me on and uh, look forward to our conversation today.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I am a a resident of the Brickell neighborhood of Miami, a Miami native, third generation. Um, Both my parents were born and raised here. My grandmother was born and raised here. And my family dates back all the way to just a few years after incorporation. And probably because of that tie, I got very interested in uh, Miami's history. I've established a hobby of researching uh, and writing and producing podcasts, videos, etc. on Miami's history. One of the uh, websites that I founded uh, and that's been running now for almost 10 years is the Miami History Blog, but I also started a podcast with my co-founder, Dr. Paul George, who maybe some of your listeners have been on one of his tours or have attended one of his classes.
0: Yes, and I've had the pleasure of going around with the tour of you, walking tour with Cesar Becerra, another South Florida historian, uh, which is fantastic because what I love so much about this city is that we have so much culture, so much history, weird history even, but not a lot of people know it. And sometimes when I hear from you all and then I go back to my friends and I tell them this story, they go, how do you know this stuff? And I look at them, I go, how do you not know this stuff? Because they've lived here for years. But I feel like because we're so transient of a city, meaning people moving in, moving out. They don't always know that local gem of a story. So I really commend you. I commend Dr. Paul George. And is it true you were a student of Dr. Paul George? I was uh, the first. Who teaches local history.
1: Yeah, he teaches local history. One of his classes, which was very rare, is to find a class dedicated to local history. So he did a South Florida history class. And I happened to meet him. I had heard about him and met him on a free walking Uh, during Flagler days. He told me about it. It didn't take much for me to, to say, okay, I'm going to sign up.
0: What's your fascination with the Brickell area neighborhood? And for people who may not be from South Florida that are listening, describe the Brickell area.
1: Okay, well, Brickell today is really probably more of a brand than it really was an area. I've seen that brand expand. And so people may have heard Brickell if you've heard of Miami, because it's a very hot neighborhood now that people from all over the world are moving to. My interest in the Brickell area was is really kind of as I started to study South Florida history, I began to stumble upon some old photographs and some old stories about this neighborhood that was residential, that was very upscale and really tied to a lot of uh, national figures from, say, 100 years ago. And just given that uh, celebrity cachet, but also the beauty of the area, it really just kind of captivated me. A matter of fact, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that Paul and I also co-authored a book called The Brickell Avenue Neighborhood, which is a pictorial history of the Brickell area.
0: And I love the stories of residents. There's one particular, we are here to talk about the Coral Cliff property, which has a little yeah. bit of a weird history. Why don't we get into that?
1: Uh, it, was, it was in. Interesting property in that in this particular case this home was purchased in 1903 built in 1904 and stood in Brickell until 1960. The same family owned it all the way up until 1960. This property was at 1725 Brickell Avenue. It was built by a gentleman by the name of Commodore Henry Clay Room. Henry Clay Room was like a lot of the residents that built these very large we can only really refer to as winter estates. It was really the opulence of the 19th. 1920s that we began to see a lot of a lot of these types of homes. This one predated it by a good 15 years, and the home itself looked a lot like what you would find in the Northeast, maybe a Queen Anne or a Victorian style of architecture. But it was right up on a cliff, which is really where the cliff part of Coral Cliff we comes from. We have a cliff. Well, a little <laughs> bit of a cliff. Yeah, when you're when you're at sea level or in some cases below sea level, if if you're up you know eight feet, that's a cliff. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, cliff. a cliff. Okay, that's a Florida uh, cliff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> (laughs) Really, the only picture that I've seen of the house uh, was taken from the bay looking down the dock. That dock was really important because Commodore Henry Clay Room became a a sailing enthusiast, made his money in developing one of the first home burglary systems. Uh, Once he acquired his wealth, he began to get into sailing, became a member of the Long Island Sailing Club, the New York Yacht Club, and I'm not sure which of the two, but he became a Commodore of, of one of the two. Fast forward to about 1897, he and his wife, uh, take a trip down to this new place called Miami, and uh, he's one of the um, a visitor in the first year that the Royal Palm Hotel was open. And as soon as he saw the rustic nature of what Miami was at that time, which was really just a very large luxury hotel and a developing small town feel, but it had the beautiful bay. And he, being a sailing enthusiast, decided he just fell in love with Miami right away. So for the first few years, he would travel and stay at Henry Flagler's Royal Palm Hotel. Then he uh, decided to purchase some property from Mary Brickle. So he ends up... um Buying this property in 1903, builds his house in and really just kind of ingratiates himself to the area, begins to—he uh, joins the Biscayne Bay Yacht Club, he becomes uh, a regular as part of the regatta races, and he did so up until his passing in 1916. Now, his wife continued to live in Coral Cliff. They maintained a home up, uh, up in New York, but they would come down for the winter months, What was interesting about this neighborhood is that they were vacant during the summer months. And this is where we get into some of the irony of the fact that Henry Clay Room was a an inventor and uh, made his money off of home burglary systems is that while they were vacant, you would see in the newspapers you would see all sorts of petty crimes. People that would break in, maybe they would steal some dishes. If there was any jewelry left, you know, in the home, they would be able to um, come off with that as well. So some of these crimes, given Miami a hundred years ago, really made the newspaper, and in some cases were toward the front. So one of the very first crimes. Uh, actually happened during national prohibition. Miami was considered one of the leakiest places in the country <laughs> during prohibition. Uh, and made
0: a lot of people rich.
1: Made a lot of people rich. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of violence. There was some, mostly with confrontation with the, the customs, U.S., uh, the Coast Guard, and the people that were really trying to enforce prohibition. But during this time, and actually prior to that, because Miami voted itself dry in 1913, it was contested in 1915. Oh, I had no it, idea. Yeah, so, so the, the county itself, Dade County was dry beginning in January of 1914 they voted on it in 13. so it had been in prohibition for a while but nobody was adhering to that law so one of the places that was used as a drop-off point for rum uh, what they called gunny sacks where they would store bottles of, of uncut rum and what that means is that it wasn't watered down it would come on some of these docks along Brickle I mean there was a case of the end of a street there was a dock there that that was used for drop-off points but uh, this this home, uh, Coral Cliff, actually because it was very well hidden with trees, was back deep on the lot, close to the water, there was nobody patrolling Biscayne Bay. Uh, It just became really easy after dark when nobody was there during the summer months to drop off large quantities of rum. Uh, so on January 24th, 1927, this nice little nest of rum running actually got discovered by a U.S. customs agent. Uh, he was driving down after dark on Brickle Avenue and noticed a car or two pull out of the property at uh, 1725 Brickell. However, they didn't have their lights on. <laughs> and if you're a police officer, you probably know that there are things you look for that are suspicious. So mm-hmm. this, uh, I think there were two custom agents patrolling, and so they decided to do a U-turn and pull these Folks over, and they ended up finding several people with these gunny sacks of rum. So they they had their bust. However, it wasn't until they came back to the house and looked around that they found even more people that were unloading. And uh, ultimately, the the arrest led to um, uh, six people being arrested: uh, five men and one woman. But there were 212 sacks of choice liquor that were confiscated. And uh, for those who like really good liquor, uh, what happened next was that most likely it was taken somewhere uh, under police watch and, and all those bottles were broken and all that liquor was wasted. And but, they had no it, clue
0: this was happening on their property. No,
1: no, they were not involved at all. And it probably fact
0: happened for a while. It yet. Probably
1: for a very long time. And that's that's just the way it was. I mean, anywhere there was a dock and anywhere you can back a car up and fill it up with rum or these gunny sacks. And gunny sacks are like a way of packing these bottles of rum as you transported it by boat. All that rattling doesn't break the bottle. So it's a way of separating and insulating the bottles of rum. Oh, okay. Uh, And it could be other things. It could be whiskey and and what have you. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know that they were not there in January. That might have been a time that they would have been there, but Sarita Room was was not there at the time. Uh, She also had a son, Walter Room, who would later take over the property after her death. And I think she had passed in the 1930s. So fast forwarding to February 17th, 1937,
0: On the same property. On the
1: same property. There was a crime that was committed while somebody was there. There was a guest in the house. It wasn't one of the rooms. It was somebody that was either leasing space or was just staying there. But what had happened is that uh, somebody had come along, and this was a, a pattern of crimes that never got solved, or at least I couldn't find that it got solved but a pattern of crimes where somebody had broken into the screen door in the back by cutting through the screen, unlocking the door, and going in and ultimately stealing $410 worth of jewelry from the person staying there. And all this happened while she was there. Now, I'm thinking to myself...
0: That's a lot of money for, 19- for, for 1937. 1937.
1: Yeah. So the one interesting thing about that is that where was the burglar system? Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, you would think that the home that was constructed by the the inventor of the home burglary system would would have his, his home secured, or maybe it was at one time. but uh, So that's the second crime that I found documented on the property. And more than likely, there were multiple break-ins. Right. Because that just happened. And, you know, only the ones that really got reported, in some cases, people may not have found out about it until months later.
0: I wonder what his back. burglary system was and <laughs> why it didn't work. I mean...
1: You know, I plan on, at, at some point, I, I've had a lot of trouble finding a really good picture of this, of this home. I'd love to write a story on it, but I can't write a story on it without some sort of cover photo. Yeah. And that's what I'm, I do on my blog site is to make sure I've got good pictures to include with the stories. So one final story I want to share. Uh, We're going to fast forward 10 years, this time into the summer of 1947. There was a string of burglaries that were happening along uh, South Miami Avenue, which is part of Brickell, known as the Holloman Park area. And the police, they were investigating. They really didn't have a lot of clues until one of the thieves got a little brazen and started writing notes and (laughs) leaving notes behind. And one of the notes, he had a break in on South Miami Avenue. He complimented the decor of the house and complimented the dog thought it was a friendly (laughs) nice dog and on that note he signed it gentle jim That comes into play because uh, in August of 1947, they have a break-in, and some things are stolen, and there's a note left behind, and again, it's from Gentle Jim. They must have broken in through an open window or broke a window along where there's a lot of bushes and whatnot, but one mistake that they made as they left is that apparently they carried shortwave radios to talk to each other, and one of the thieves' radio dropped in the bushes. The police. This is like
0: high tech burglary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So, uh, what the police did is that they didn't put this story in the newspaper, and they told the gardener, "Keep an eye out for anybody that comes on the property and starts looking around, particularly over by this window where, where these bushes are."
0: Oh, to look for the radio again.
1: Yeah, and sure enough, they showed up. A couple of, a couple of teenagers had shown up, and they're looking around, and, and the gardener did exactly what he was instructed, went in the house, called the police, and they caught them on the property looking for this radio that they had lost and left behind. And so the police got there and arrested him, and Gentle Jim ended up being a 15-year-old kid who admitted to all the break-ins. They ended up putting him in a detention center called Mariana, and they held him there until he helped them find his accomplice, which he did, and he testified against him, and uh, I guess served out a little bit more time in the detention center. The home that, the the (laughs) gentleman that invented the home burglary system, you know, was not particularly, uh, particularly safe and didn't seem to have a burglary system.
0: I mean, was it a hotbed for crime? I mean, I know it's a rich area, or is it just because they would hit during the summer months when snowbirds weren't there? Yeah,
1: so that was primarily in terms of what I found. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't find any, you know, articles that talked about trends in crime. But when I would find crimes they tend to be these breaking breaking in and stealing just some burglary. Burglary. Bur- yeah. yeah. But you know, some of it is, you know, pretty valuable stuff. There are family heirlooms, there's sure. jewelry, there's there were there was in some cases clothing. Mm-hmm. There was a home that was built by Maude Brickle just down the road where when the Estill family moved in, they, um, the Estill the family, George still was the uh, CEO of, of Florida Power and Light. So um, they moved in in the mid-1930s. and. The week they moved in, somebody had broken in and stolen all sorts of clothes and furs and other things while they were there, you know, while they were pretty much not even completely unpacked yet from from what I can tell from the, the article. So there was a lot of that type of crime. Mm-hmm. People kind of looked at it as fairly safe, not well patrolled, well hidden because it was a good tree line. You know, they had yeah, private, yeah. You know, a lot of privacy foliage between the view from the street to the house. Yeah. turned on.
0: <laughs> so what happened again? You said the house was stood still until the 60s?
1: It, it stood until 1960. The the Room family from Henry Clay Room and Sarita Room, the couple, they, they lived there until his death in 16. She lived there and I believe she passed in the 1930s. I do think that they leased it out at times, mm-hmm. you know, because it was not a full-time residence. But the son Walter Room lived there until his passing and he died in 1960. That was really the last reference I saw to that property. But by the late 1960s or something called the uh, CTA Towers. It was uh, built as a retirement condominium for retired teachers, and it was built on that property. Oh, okay. You know, I, I have to sometimes deduce exactly when a home went down. I looked through city directory, stopped referring to it in 1960. Walter passed away in, I think, 59. And at that point, uh, there, there was just no other references to the house. Gotcha. So, sometimes you have to do history by deduction.
0: So is this particular story on your blog, if somewhere to go, someone were to go to your blog now?
1: It is not. I'd like to write about the house and just kind of the people that, you know, the, the rooms, a little bit more detail on that. Uh, it's on my list. I have a very long list of, of things I'd like to write about. As you can imagine, the research and writing does take a long a long time. And uh, I can get distracted. I tend to go on a, a topic <laughs> a not wall. on the list. Right. And, and I Down write a rabbit about hole. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Yes, and you have a yeah. lot of good stories. Tell us um, how someone can find your blog.
1: Okay, so the uh, the, the blog is miami-history.com. Uh, actually, if you search just Miami History in Google, I'm on the first page, and that's always a good thing right behind History Miami Museum. But if you can't find it by miami-history.com or forget the dash, you know, that's another way to look for it.
0: Yes, and I, I encourage our listeners to definitely check it out. And tell us a little bit about your podcast.
1: So the podcast is um, very similar to yours. You know, sometimes I have a guest. Normally that guest is Dr. Paul George, and he and I will tackle a topic. And we've got about, I want to say about 50 or 60 episodes out there. We started in 2018, 2019, Mm -hmm. and you could access that off the website. So there's a a header called podcast. Yeah, I I saw that right at the top of the page. Yeah, Yeah. or if you prefer to listen to your podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify uh soundcloud all of that we, we've published out to all of those
0: excellent well casey thank you for joining us and thank you for enlightening us on some of these weird crimes uh particularly at coral cliff
1: thank you very much for having me i appreciate it
0: that was casey paquette author and historian talking about weird crimes that occurred in the brickle area neighborhood for more interesting stories about Miami history, be sure to check out Casey's blog at Miami-History.com and the Miami History Podcast with Dr. Paul George. We'll also have a link on our website at soflowear.com. Next, my own personal account of being robbed by a petty thief who puckers up for his prize. This is the true story of The Kissing Bandit. It was the summer of 1979, and there was a bandit whose reward wasn't jewels or money. The currency he dealt in was kisses. One such night, he was on the prowl looking to pucker up on his next heist. It's just past midnight, and as we lay sleeping, there is a faint sound of white noise, and a dim light is showing across the back room of the house where the TV is left on. We're not accustomed to locking our doors, and unbeknownst to us, a thief is ransacking the van in the driveway. His reward is meager, small change in the cup holder and the necklace that hangs from the rearview mirror. To satisfy his need for more, he quietly enters the house. My cousin Rick and his girlfriend Terry are asleep in the back room. The burglar enters the room and rummages through a few items on a nearby nightstand. He then stands at the bedside over Terry, bends down, and gently steals a kiss. She bolts up, and through the dim light of the television, she can see a towel draped over his head, and he's bare-chested. He runs out the back door without a trace. Needless to say, this has us on guard, and we start to lock our doors. We receive word that there are a few other break-ins in the neighborhood. A few months prior, a new family moved into the corner house. It was a rental, so people were constantly moving in and out. Living in our house is my mom, my sister Lisa, Rick, Terry, and me. Up until this point, we had always felt safe and well-protected, thanks to Bruno, our German Shepherd. Sadly, Bruno passed away only two weeks prior to the break-in. Bruno always protected us. One time, when kids were stealing our bikes from the front porch, we just opened the door and let Bruno out. They ditched the bikes, and Bruno chased one up and over the fence. Another time, the back of our dresser caught fire, which was sparked from an outlet where we had a space heater plugged in. He barked nonstop until we all woke up and my dad was able to quickly extinguish the fire. Besides being a part of the family, he was our protector, and now we had to protect ourselves. I start sleeping with a heavy brass candlestick. A week later, a day later, and exactly one hour later, our mystery thief reappears. This time, he sneaks in through a window from the back of the house. He enters Lisa's room. At this point, my sister is pretending to be asleep, lying still on the bed. She can see he's feeling around the dresser for anything small he can easily steal. He then goes to the foot of the bed and carefully lifts up the sheet and puts his hand gently on her leg. Lisa considers jumping up and throwing the sheet over his head as she lies motionless. As he gets closer to stealing a kiss, Lisa's attempt to apprehend him is derailed when he becomes startled and runs for the front door. Lisa screams out, Rick! So he'll wake up and runs out after him. But the kissing bandit disappears into the shadows of the night. What my sister was thinking I do not know, chasing after the thief. Nor do I think she knows. She was just acting on adrenaline and impulse. By now, I'm a bit freaked out because I thought two women down, two to go, just my mom and me. As you can imagine, I'm stressed out anticipating the worst could happen a week later, a day later, and another hour later. But lo and behold, the kissing bandit is caught red-handed in the house behind ours. He was the 15-year-old son of our neighbors next door. Days later, they disappear. As for us, We got another dog and never stopped locking the door. Next, the stakes get high when we go from small-time thievery to a big-time heist. This next brazen bandit managed to pull off the biggest jewel heist of the 20th century. You may have heard of him before, Jack Roland Murphy, better known as Murph the Surf. Originally from California, the famed jewel thief and convicted murderer turned jailhouse evangelist was an overachiever in everything he set out to do, even in the underworld. He was an avid athlete with a near-genius IQ. Murphy was a surfing champion who was inducted to the East Coast Surf Legends Hall of Fame in 1996. He was also a concert violinist and a Hollywood stuntman. To police, he seemed like an unlikely candidate for a criminal conspiracy, but evidence revealed that he had fallen in with a shady character named Alan Kuhn. A champion swimmer and diver, Kuhn loved the Miami Beach lifestyle of yachts, fast cars, and boats, and he had a penchant for stealing to finance his excess. Murphy moved to Miami in 1955 and taught swimming, scuba, and tennis, and danced at cabana clubs and resorts. He later moved to Cocoa Beach and opened up a surf shop, but his time there was cut short due to bad business deals and a failed marriage, so he closed up shop and returned to Miami Beach, where he knew he could easily find work. Once there, he met Alan Kuhn and started a crash course in a life of crime. Murphy possessed a photographic memory, which enabled him to locate and appraise jewels worn by tourists and socialites in bars, clubs, and resorts. Then he joined Kuhn and a crew in climbing high rise apartment balconies to gain access to the loot before fleeing on speedboats into Miami's network of waterways. To evade police, Murphy once jumped into Biscayne Bay with a bag of jewels and used his swimming skills to swim two miles to a dock with a waiting getaway car. With each robbery, their crimes became bolder, and Murphy loved the thrill of the chase. All this led to their most daring heist yet. On October 29, 1964, Jack Murphy and two accomplices broke into New York City's American Museum of Natural History and stole the J.P. Morgan collection of precious gems. The heist included the theft of the Star of India, the world's largest sapphire weighing 563 carats. Murphy and another man scaled two protective fences on the night of the robbery while an accomplice waited in a getaway car. They entered the museum's interior courtyard through an unlocked window and used ropes to lower themselves to the gem room's floor. This may sound like a scene from Mission Impossible, but in truth the circumstances made it easily possible. Security from the fourth floor hall of gems was terrible. Burglar alarms had long ago stopped working Windows at night were left ajar for ventilation, and there were only eight guards for the museum's dozens of interconnected buildings. So, it was no surprise the two escaped without setting off any alarms, and they flew quickly to Miami. The stones were valued at more than $400,000. Today, that equates to over $3.3 3 million. After a tip, police apprehended all three thieves 48 hours later. The Star of India was found in a Miami bus station locker, and most of the other gems were recovered except for the 14-carat Eagle Diamond and the DeLong Ruby. The DeLong Ruby was later ransomed for $25,000, but the Eagle Diamond was never found. It was later determined that the 16-and-a-quarter-carat Diamond had been immediately cut into stones and sold. The heist was the subject of a 1975 movie directed by Marvin Chomsky called Murph the Surf. The movie starred Robert Conrad, Burt Young, and Don Stroud as Murphy. Murphy was released in 1967 after serving only 21 months in prison for his role in the infamous heist, and traveled frequently between Florida and California. By then, the outlaw surfer vibe wore off, revealing something edgier. This was a turning point in Murphy's style and image as a glamorous cat burglar. He was about to become involved in violent crimes that resulted in several deaths. That same year in 1967, a grisly discovery was made. The weighted down bodies of Terry Ray Frank and Annelle Marie Mon were found in Whiskey Creek Canal near Hollywood at the site of John U. Lloyd Beach State Park. The two women had been shot, beaten to death, and then dumped in the canal. They were former secretaries at the Los Angeles brokerage firm of Rutner, Jackson & Gray and were suspects in the theft of $488,732 worth of stocks, equivalent to approximately $3.8 million today. The loss of the stocks was not discovered until after the two women quit the firm and moved to Florida. Shortly after arriving in Florida, Frank and Mon moved in with Murphy. They were last seen on board a boat in which Murphy was driving. It took five months for the state to build a case in the Whiskey Creek murders. In the meantime, Murphy and a crew attempted to rob Miami Beach socialite Olive Wolford in early 1968. They broke in, armed with a pistol, and threatened to pour boiling water on Wolford's young niece if she didn't unlock the safe. But they triggered a silent alarm. Finally caught and in jail, Murphy and his accomplice Jack Griffith were tried in Fort Lauderdale in 1969 first for the murder of Terry Ray Frank. Murphy's lawyer pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder by reason of insanity, and Murphy was committed to a mental hospital for several months before a judge ruled him fit to stand trial. He was sentenced to life in prison. His accomplice Griffith was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Subsequently, Murphy was convicted in the Wofford robbery and sentenced to a second life sentence plus 20 years. During his time in prison, Murphy found God, showed remorse for his past, and became a model inmate. He assisted in the prison's chaplain program, led Bible studies, and mentored other men in prison. It was this exemplary behavior that the Florida Parole Board voted to release Murphy in 1986 after serving 19 years. Murphy continued his ministry, visiting prisons and youth detention facilities all over the world as a messenger of God, with the aim of helping rehabilitate other felons through religion. He also wrote a book about his experiences called Jewels for the Journey. Murphy lived in Crystal River, Florida, and continued to stay active until his death on September 12, 2020. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFlowWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFlowWeird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlow Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Soon we'll be launching a membership with exclusive benefits and some really cool events. But for now, here's SoFlow contributor Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlow Weird Street Team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with the hashtag SoFlowWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social media or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlo team and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go on our website, pick up some SoFlo swag or buy us a coffee
1: and we'll give you a shout out on the show.
0: I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. We'd also like to give a shout-out to our Super superfan, Leanna Parsram, for her continued support of this podcast. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.